0: We're going to open up this morning and start in John chapter 18, verses 25 to 27. Let's pray. Father, would you help me today to be able to recall and to preach what I've learned about what took place in Peter's life as an example, that we would learn from his example, We pray, Lord, that you would fortify us and strengthen us against the first workings of sin that we detect in our life, that we wouldn't allow them to grow and become stronger and and enslave us. Help us, Lord Jesus, today to understand and apply your truth. In your name, amen. In John chapter 18, we have the account of Peter's denial of Jesus. In verse 25, It says, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. Here we come to... Maybe the darkest moment in Peter's life. He's forsaken his master. He has denied his Lord. He's acted like a coward. He's ashamed to own Christ when he should have been confessing Christ. And we wonder how in the world could this happen to Peter? Peter was the undisputed leader of the 12 disciples. He was the spokesperson. He was the one always named first in every list in the Gospels where it gives us the names of the disciples. Peter always heads every list. He was a bold man. He was a brave man. But sin is very deceitful. Sin can creep up like degrees in our life. Almost imperceptibly, sin can start working stronger and stronger within your life unless you cut it off at the beginning. And... You know people don't commit horrible sins overnight right a pastor doesn't wake up one day and say I think I'll commit adultery today I've never thought of it before but I think I'll do it today it it happens very slowly over a period of time where sin begins to grow and become stronger in his life and he's not on guard against it a person doesn't wake up one day and say oh I think I'll just embezzle my company today you know this happens slowly and imperceptibly So, Peter's fall didn't happen overnight either. I want to take you back six months before this period of time when we start to see the seeds of sin beginning working in Peter's life. So, go back with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. I mean, excuse me, Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father who is in heaven, I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven And whatever you bind on earth shall be, have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. Now we, we just saw probably the lowest point in Peter's life when he denied his Lord. We've been shifted back six months and here's one of the highest points in Peter's life because Jesus is asking them, well, Who do people say that I am? And they give these various theories of who Jesus might be. Elijah, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Jesus wasn't content to know what other people were thinking about him. He wanted to know what his disciples thought about him. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, always the first one to speak, blurts out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter says, no human being revealed that to you. It wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. It was revealed to you by my father who is in heaven. In other words, the creator of the universe has given you this revelation, Peter. And not only that, you are Peter, which means a stone. And upon this rock, probably referring to the confession he had just made that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Upon the rock, I'm going to build my church And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And not only that, he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And you're going to have the authority to bind and loose, forbid and permit what takes place within this kingdom. Great authority will be given to you. Great revelation has been given to you. And upon you and this confession that you have just made, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So Peter must have been... (laughs) feeling pretty wonderful when he has these words of affirmation from Jesus. But then we come to verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. So Peter had just heard, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church on you and this confession you've just made. I'm giving you the authority of the kingdom. You have the keys and you can bind and you can loose. God has given you revelation. And Peter must have been feeling pretty cocky at this point. Wow, I'm the rock. I've got the keys of the kingdom. I get inside revelation from God. I'm amazing. I'm this amazing Christian, (laughs) you know. And then Jesus says, well, by the way, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And so how does Peter respond? No, Lord. Well, it says actually he took him aside Lord, let me just take you aside a minute. I don't want to embarrass you in front of the other 11 disciples, but you're all wrong about this. I mean, I'm the rock. I get revelation from God. You're not going to suffer and die. I mean, don't you remember we're going to build a monster church and I'm going to be the head of this church. I'm the rock that you're going to build it on. Lord, you're not suffering and dying. We're building your church and the gates of haters are not going to overpower it. God forbid it, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. Notice he rebuked the Lord. I, I, read, I read that line and I kind of shudder. Yeah. A human being rebuking Jesus Christ. Pe- Peter must have been so full and so sh- full of himself and so sure of himself at this point that he, he rebukes the Lord. Lord, I'm right. and You're wrong in this matter. Let me set you straight. And Jesus responds, get behind me. Not Peter, Satan. He had just been a mouthpiece for God a few verses earlier. Now he's a mouthpiece for Satan. He had gone from the highest high to the lowest low in a matter of a short period of time. Peter saying, you know, Lord, no demon can stand against us. You've already told us that the gates of Hades will not overpower your church. Don't deflate our enthusiasm by all this talk of suffering. Lord, you're not going to suffer and die. We're going. We're going for it. I believe Peter's error here was spiritual pride. He thought he knew more than Jesus. That's pretty arrogant. Wouldn't you say Jesus was the master. He was the disciple, but he thought he knew more than his master and it changed him from a spokesperson for God to a spokesperson for Satan. And uh, this is true about us. True. When God begins to use us, maybe he reveals some things to you like he did to Peter, He begins to use you. You see him using you, doing things in the kingdom, and you start to feel a little proud about that. Wow, I must be a little special here. Maybe I'm a little bit better than these other Christians I know around me. And pride starts going to our head. We start to think that we know all the answers, that we're the ones that are right and everybody else is wrong. We've got a quarter on the truth. I, I've known Christians who get to that point where they cannot, you cannot challenge them on anything because they're all, their mind is totally made up. They know they're right. They can't consider any other information that there's anything they could be wrong about. That's a dangerous position to be in because we're no longer humble. We're very proud. And what does the Bible say about God's relationship to proud people? He's opposed to them, He opposes the proud. God can't use a proud person. So beware of spiritual pride. It's raising its ugly head in Peter's life. When God begins to use us, when God begins to reveal himself to us, we need to plead with him not to allow this to go to our head, not to allow us to become proud and arrogant and think we know everything. We're Mr. Know-it-all. You know, the more I learn about the Bible and God, the more I realize there's so much I don't know. God is so big, I'm never going to understand all there is to know about God in this lifetime. And I'm never going to understand everything about this book before I die. There's just so much there. Well, that brings us to the second stage in Peter's life, which is Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26. And here we find Peter six months later. Fast forward six months. We find Peter on the night before Jesus goes to the cross. In Matthew 26, verse 31, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying before he's even arrested. Verse 31 Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples said the same thing, too. Now, spiritual pride is working in Peter to the place where he is extremely self-confident. Self-confidence is the second sin spiritual pride is morphing now into the confidence in his flesh. Jesus said to him that everybody was going to fall away because of him. Jesus even quoted the scripture, Zechariah thirteen seven to prove that all of them would fall away that very night. How does Peter respond? He argues with Jesus. He's still arguing with Jesus. He still thinks he's right. And Jesus is wrong. He thinks all the other disciples are cowards, but he's going to be true to the end, even though everybody else may fall away. I'm the rock, Peter, our Lord. I'm the rock. I'm going to be here for you. You can count on me. I'll even die if I have to. And, you know, I think he believed it. I think he really believed what he was saying in that moment, but he didn't know the weakness of his own flesh. He didn't know how quickly he could fall without the grace of God. He argues In verse 33, Jesus insists that they're all going to fall away. And he continues to argue in verse 35. Folks, watch out when you start saying things like, I would never do that. Though everybody else is doing it, I would never do it. I would never allow my baby to sit in front of the TV as a babysitter. I would never use my phone as a babysitter for my child. I would never lie in that situation like that person did. When you start to compare yourself with others and think that you're better than them, you need to watch out for that. Peter was comparing himself to all the rest of the disciples, and he was saying, I'm better than them. I won't do what they're going to do, Lord. You can always count on me. And Peter was wrong. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 10:12, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Take heed. So, spiritual pride. Now, self-confidence. He's not confident in God or God's word, he's confident in his own flesh, which leads us to spiritual laziness. Look at verse 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. So he left nine of his disciples. He took Peter, James, and John a little bit further with him. He's got this extreme burden on his heart right now because he knows that he's going to suffer and die for the sins of the world. So he's he's under this crushing weight As he considers what's about to happen, not just the physical sufferings of nails going through his flesh, but of the wrath of God being poured out upon him and him being made sin for us. And we we can't even conceive what that would have been like. But he's considering that. And so he's just grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them. And fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour. Do You see here the, the hurt, the disappointment in his voice. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So humanly speaking, I think Jesus wanted the support of his three closest disciples. He's entering into the deepest, most distressing period of time in his life. And Jesus was not just God. He was God and man at the same time. And in his humanity, I think he was wanting the support, the prayer support. Uh, He's wanting his disciples to be on their watch. And he's wanting them to pray, not only for Jesus, but also for themselves. Because within 12 hours period of time, they're going to face a great trial. Their master, whom they have come to depend on, is going to die. And what, how are they going to face that trial? How, how, how will they be able to face it? The only way they could be prepared for this is through prayer. And so Jesus gives them a command in verse 41. Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. He also gave them the command in verse 36. Sit here while I go over there and pray. And then verse 38. Remain here and keep watch with me. But instead of obeying the command of Jesus. To keep watching and praying. They fell asleep. Why? Because their flesh was weak. It says in verse 41. Their spirit was willing. Their flesh was weak. Our spirit is willing. Your spirit is willing to read the word, to pray, to meditate on scripture, to worship, to serve God, to fast. All of the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life, your spirit is willing to do those things. It's your flesh that's weak. And the problem is that our flesh dictates to our spirit what we are to do. And we listen to our flesh rather than listening to our spirit. Your spirit says, rise early and seek me. And your flesh says, I'm just too tired. I'm going to turn off my snooze and I'm going back to sleep. You know, the spirit in the flesh. <laughs> we become spiritually lazy because we are. Our, our flesh dictate, dictates to our spirit what we ought to do and we listen to it. So there's spiritual laziness going on. They're sleeping when they should have been praying. And then finally, we go back to John chapter 18. Let's see this final phase in Peter's life. I'm calling this misdirected works. John chapter 18, verse 8. Here we have the chief priests, the scribes, the religious leaders. They've come and they've arrested Jesus. And in verse 8, Jesus answered them and said, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of these whom you have given me. I lost not one. Simon Peter, then having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath, the cup, which the father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Now, did you notice even to the very end, Jesus or Peter is still arguing with the Lord. The Lord says, whom do you seek? And then he says, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. In other words, you can take me, but just let these go their way. Don't arrest them, I'm willing to be arrested and go wherever you want. So Jesus is submitting himself to this arrest. Peter's not. Peter takes up a sword, and I don't think he was trying to cut off his ear. His head. (laughs) Peter was a fisherman, not a soldier. I don't think he knew a lot about swords. Um, I do kind of admire him. He's a brave man. He's standing one guy against all of these other people with one sword, and he's going to go after the guy that's coming to arrest Jesus and take him away. No, Lord, I'm not going to let this happen to you. It's going way back to Matthew 16. Lord, this shall never happen to you. And he's still saying that this shall never happen to you. You're not going to suffer and die. I'll protect you, Lord but he's out of step with jesus he's out of step with the will of god if he had been awake in the garden he would have heard jesus say nevertheless not my will but yours be done he would have heard jesus say must i drink this cup and he recognized that jesus by the end of his prayer time had submitted and surrendered himself to drink the cup which the father had given him to drink and that's why jesus was giving himself up to a rest he was surrendering But Peter was resisting. So they were at odds with each other at this point. I wonder when I think about Peter, do we keep the Lord busy putting on ears that we cut off? We think we're doing the right thing. I think Peter thought he was doing the right thing here, but he was doing the wrong thing. Jesus has to rebuke him and say, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, you're fighting at cross purposes with me. Put the sword up. We think we're doing the right thing in the moment, but we're doing the wrong thing because we've lost connection. We've lost communication. We've lost communion with Christ. And we're not hearing from him anymore. We're doing things in the energy of our flesh. We're wailing our swords around, cutting ears off when we should be putting the sword into its sheath and surrendering to the will of God. We can create lots of messes that the Lord has to go around and clean up behind us. I think that's what happens when we no longer commune with the Lord. We no longer spend time in prayer. We no longer open up his word and let him speak to us. And we just start doing things that in our own mind we think are good. And they're not. We're out of step now. We're out of step with the spirit. Now notice this chain starts with spiritual pride. That spiritual pride leads to self-confidence where Peter is so confident now that he's not going to deny the Lord, even if he has to die. That self-confidence leads to spiritual laziness. He neglects the spiritual disciplines He feels like he doesn't need them. He's got it all together. He's the rock. He's the spiritual one. He's more spiritual than all the rest of the disciples. Why should he have to watch and pray? So he's neglecting now the disciplines that will keep him close to the Lord. And that leads to these misdirected works, like chopping off the slave's ear. He's busy, but barren. He's diligent, but dead. He's not listening to Christ. And you know when you are doing misdirected works in your life, it's when you're serving, the Lord becomes a burden. When it becomes burdensome to you rather than a joy to serve the Lord, stop at that point and figure out, okay, what went wrong? Why is this such a burden to me right now? Why is my joy gone when I'm trying to serve the Lord? Maybe I'm not in fellowship with the Lord like I have been. It leads to him denying Christ, which is something that he couldn't believe that he would ever do. Notice also in John 18, 5, it says that Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them, with the enemies of Christ who were there to arrest him. Judas was standing with the enemies of Christ. And then if you look at verse 25, It says, now, Simon, Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Peter is standing with the enemies of Christ. Peter is taking the outward position of Judas at this point. They're both standing with the enemies of Christ. Peter doesn't look any different than a Judas at this point. Even though he is, he's he's not a betrayer of his Lord. He will repent. But at this point, he looks just like Judas. Now, remember, this didn't happen overnight. It took at least six months for all of this to begin to unfold and, and create this scene where Peter's actually denying his Lord to a slave girl, something that he, he, I'm sure he would have thought he never would have done. Peter was a man of courage. He was a man of boldness. He drew a sword to defend his Lord, but now he's cowering at the words of a slave girl. And he's unwilling to identify with his master. So what does that teach us, folks? What does Peter's example teach us? There's a couple of things I think that we need to learn from this. First of all, we need to guard ourselves against the first motions of sin in our life. If Peter had done that way back at Caesarea Philippi when spiritual pride was puffing his head up and he repented of that and asked God to drive it out of him, I don't think he would have denied him six months later. It led One thing led to another. And we need to guard against the first motions of sin that we see going on in our life. Not allow them to continue for a while, like, like a pet kitten or something. You know, ki- we'll just pet it for a while and then we'll put it outdoors, we think. Sin is not like a pet kitten. Sin is like a worm on the end of a hook. And the fish thinks, oh, that's going to taste so good, that worm. Oh, I can't, I can't wait to... Ha- Chomp on that, that worm. And when he does, he feels the bite going into his lip and he's hooked. Sin hooks us. Sin enslaves us if we don't fight it with all our might. Sin promises satisfaction. That's why we're told about the deceitfulness of sin in Hebrews chapter 3. The deceit, Sin is deceitful because it promises you satisfaction. And you bite it and it it feels satisfying for a little while, for a little while. And then you feel the sting, the bitterness that comes along with that sin, the guilt that you feel towards God, your, your relationship with, with the Lord. You feel there's a brokenness there that you need to be reconciled to the Lord. You need to confess your sin. You need to come back to him. Um, you may have hurt others with that sin. You may have hurt yourself. All this negativity comes along with, with our sin. And sin leads to greater sin. If it's not checked initially, it leads to other sin, greater sin, stronger sin, more enslaving sin. That's what we studied when we were in Romans chapter 6. In verse 20, Paul says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and eternal life. So what he's saying is that sin leads to more sin, which ultimately leads to death. Sanctification leads to holiness, which ultimately leads to eternal life. Sin leads to sin. Sanctification leads to holiness. It's kind of like leprosy. I believe leprosy was something that God intended for us to see sin. It's a picture. It it looks grotesque because sin looks grotesque to God. It spreads. It's a contagion that spreads throughout your body and it can spread to other people because sin isn't this little self-contained unit sin can break out in your life and it can lead to other sins unless you deal with it quickly and severely in Romans 13 14 Paul says make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts don't make any provision don't store up something that sin will feed on it reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 Let me look at that. It's Matthew chapter five, verse 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus, I believe, is indicating that if we allow sin to rule and reign in our life, we are destined for hell. doesn't matter what profession you make. Is sin your master? Is it enslaving you? Are you surrendering your life to sin? Is it the pattern of your life to surrender to sin? It's going to take you to hell, Jesus says. And so rather than allow your whole body to be cast into hell, deal severely with the first motions of sin. If your right eye is causing you to stumble, pluck it out. And I don't think he meant that literally. I think all of us kind of instinctively know he's not talking about gouging your eye out or actually cutting off your hand. He's saying deal severely with you, with that thing, with that sin problem that you have. Deal with it. Repent of it. Turn to Christ. Plead with him to give you victory over that. Take it seriously. Because if you don't, if you end up living in sin, the end of that kind of life is hell, according to Jesus, not heaven. So, brothers and sisters, let's guard ourselves. Over in 1 Peter 5, it says, Beyond the alert, watch out for the devil. He's like a, a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone that he can devour. So it's not just your flesh that you have to wash out against. You have an enemy. The devil also would like to destroy you. He's looking for ways that he can, he can come against you. And we're to be on our guard against him. Or to be on guard against sin in our life. If you are far from God this morning, then what the Lord is saying is to repent. That's what Peter did. That proved that he was a genuine disciple because when he was confronted with his sin, he truly repented. It's Bible says he went out and wept bitterly over what he had done to the Lord. Have any of you ever been in that place where you just felt so bad of what you've done? You know, Bitter weeping is the only thing that you can do to express yourself. If you're far from God this morning, repent. Weep bitterly. Mourn over your sin. James, it says, mourn and grieve and sorrow. And then your sorrow will be turned to joy if you will repent of your sin. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us today and thank you for this negative example in Peter's life because it teaches us how we can easily fall and how damaging pride is and how we need to have no confidence in our flesh and that we do need to cultivate diligence in the spiritual disciplines. Lord, speak to us about any sin that is going on that we're not even seeing. Maybe we're blind to it. Speak to us about it, Lord, that we can fight it by the power of your spirit and put these things to death. May they not gain hold, Lord. We don't want any of these to enslave us. We want to be free in Christ to follow Jesus fully. And now we pray, Lord, you just prepare our hearts as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and remember the body and blood of our Lord given up for us in death that we might have life. In Jesus' name, amen.